Welcome to the OSC podcast. In this edition, we're going to look at some of the problems with peer review and why it's an issue in the 21st century. So peer-reviewed scholarly publications have long been seen as the gold standard in assessing scholarly publications. Researchers are encouraged to aim for publication in certain peer-reviewed journals or present at peer-reviewed conferences in order to help further their careers. But we really need to take a step back and think about if the peer review process is really the best system to use. So peer review as a process is when a researcher will send something off to a journal, for example. An editor will take a look at it, pass it to a couple of reviewers who read through it. They look at the um, the piece of work itself, whether it's well written, whether it makes sense. And crucially, they look at the research underpinning the piece of work. So have people got their numbers right? Have they drawn appropriate conclusions? Uh, is there anything dodgy about the research? That kind of thing. Peer review is crucial in helping to maintain um, good research integrity. So it's really, really important for the research process, especially in the age of fake news. So what are the problems with this traditional peer review model? Well, it relies really heavily on individual judgment, so it can be really unreliable and inconsistent. Typically, what an editor will do is assign at least two reviewers to look at any one submission and they'll then look at it both independently and look at the quality of the work, strength of the underlying research and decide whether they want to accept it, which is quite rare, straight off, reject it outright or more typically what they do is request some kind of revision, some kind of editing work. At some point, they might bring in a third reviewer to look at it if there's like really, really different decisions, but typically it's just a couple of people. When a decision has been reached, this is passed on to the editor who kind of has the final say in what happens to the submission. No matter how well trained these people are, the individual peer reviewers are going to bring their own preconceptions and biases to their reviews. This means that it might take time for them to agree and they might actually come up with completely different verdicts. I've known it where two people have peer-reviewed the same thing and one said this is fantastic and the other one said it's completely rubbish. This inconsistency is a problem beyond individual publications and so if it's rejected at one it could be published by another which then raises questions about the quality of research publications across the board. There's also issues with um, the delay to the process of actually making research available. So sending the work out to reviewers, typically they have a month to review it. Um, most people will be doing it the night before it's due in. Most people are eternal students and never get out of that habit. And then you're going to potentially be involving other people as well. So this adds extra time to an already time-consuming process of publication. So if you go through formal peer review, the, the time from the initial submission to an article to when it's finally published can be really, really long. I wrote something once, it went through several different rounds of peer review, and it from the time it was submitted to the time it was actually finally published was about a year. Luckily, it wasn't anything major where the outcome could influence anything or change anything. But if you think about the fast-moving pace of some research areas, a, a year is a heck of a long time to have to wait. Works are rarely accepted with no revisions, meaning that several different rounds of peer review is, is quite common. So having um, that long period is, is not unheard of from time from um, submission to publication. 
It might be that the original reviewer is no longer available to review the works. So they might have to find a different person to come in and look at it. So again, that takes time. All of this um, results in time costs, but also some financial costs for the publication, because even though they're not paying people for review, they um, it does take a, an investment of their time and effort to um, find new people. Although it's quite rare, the traditional peer review model is open to some kind of tampering. So if you think about it, both reviewers and editors have quite a lot of power over what is published in a certain discipline. And it's not unheard of that they use this power to actually block publication. Peer review is usually carried out anonymously, which means reviewers can conceal any potential conflict of interest if they're not honest. And authors have little comeback if they actually suspect a problem because they don't know who the peer reviewers are. Deliberate blocking of research is rare, but they're sort of more subtle cases of bias where the individual reviewer can slip through things unchecked. Many reviewers don't have any training for doing these reviews, and so they're unsure of the best methods to use, and this kind of perpetuates the problem. We're not training these people in how to do it. They're all doing it for free. It's hard to get around some of these unconscious biases, even if you can try and um, weed out the conscious ones. All of this is not helped by the fact that it's really hard to get people to actually conduct peer review. The pool of experts in any field might be quite small, which means there's a limited number of people to contact to begin with. Obviously, some of those people are going to be busy. Some of those people won't want to review certain things. There might be a conflict of interest. So the pool of people gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And this is what we mean by um, this very small group of people then can actually have a lot of influence over what gets published in a particular sector. Added to this is the lack of incentive for peer reviewers. So it's kind of seen as a nice thing to do as a way to give back to the community, to the academic community that you come from. It's also um, can give you some skills that you can put on your CV and it's, it's quite nice to brag that you've done some peer review and that kind of thing. But it is in all honesty a massive burden. It's something that you're doing for, for no money. You're doing it often in your own time. Researchers are very busy people. That's an awful lot of extra pressure to put on them. There are also wider implications of this lack of incentive and the lack of reviewers. So without reviewers, peer review would not be possible. So peer-reviewed research would not be published. So this ever-dwindling supply is how are we going to maintain this into the future? You know, How are we going to actually sort this problem out? And again, there's the issue that academic institutions are then expected to pay for access to the materials that their research community have written and then reviewed for free, which seems a little bit cheeky because you're asking them to keep paying essentially in some way to access the content. Meanwhile, other people, the publishers are raking it in. I don't have any quick and easy to solutions to any of these problems as it would require quite a, a big change in the kind of perceived academic reward system. But recently there have been calls to move towards um, open peer review where a peer review can still be anonymous if you want, but reviewers um, can get some credit for these anonymous reviews and they can also um, sign their names and post their reviews publicly if that's something that a journal lets them do. So all of the comments are transparent and out in the open. This is something that's catching on in the research community, but it remains to be seen quite how far we will go in the future. Thanks for listening.